And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, the death and, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Thank you, Julia. Well, good morning. It's great to be uh, with you this morning and opening uh, God's Word together. Uh, will you pray with me as we come to uh, consider this, uh, this interesting part of God's Word? Let's pray. Our Father, we, uh, we thank you that we can be here this morning. We thank you for your Word and we pray and ask that you would give us wisdom and insight. Please uh, clear from our minds any distractions. Please help us to understand your Word that we may know you better, that we may love you more, that we may trust you and may obey you. And we ask for your, your work in us in the, to this end, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're coming uh, towards the, the end of our series in the book of Revelation. Uh, next week, we, we finish it off with the, uh, the last two chapters. And uh, I've actually had a bit of a break from preaching. Uh, I haven't preached any of the last four sermons in Revelation. I was away on holidays for a couple of weeks and been doing some other things. Ben's kind of been doing the heavy lifting with Revelation. But in the way our preaching program has worked, I've landed Revelation chapter 20, which is uh, quite a controversial passage uh, with a variety of understandings, and it raises the matter of the millennium. Now, um, 
This actually has nothing to do with the Millennium Falcon. I'm sorry to break that to you, Matt. Um, at least not that I'm aware of, but uh, I'm sure someone out there has made some connection with it, actually. I, sh- I shouldn't uh, assume that it has nothing to do with it. Now, some of you may really have, have not heard of the Millennium or the different views of it, and you're about to be enlightened. Uh, others of you may have, you may have picked up or perhaps even unconsciously kind of absorbed a particular view of the Millennium. Uh, others may be well-versed in the different views and, and may even hold a particular view, even uh, perhaps strongly. But this is something that Christians throughout the world think differently on. Uh, there tends to be differences in what people think, uh, tr- different trends within different countries. So if you're uh, from North, uh, Christians in North America tend to, uh, to go for premillennialism. Uh, Christians in the UK tend to go for amillennialism. And here in Australia, depending on which of those we're kind of more influenced by, uh, we will follow one or the other. But what is it that I'm talking about? Well, it's got to do with how we understand the future and what will happen with the return of Christ. In particular, what the millennium is and when the millennium is. And so the labels pre and post have got to do with with where the return of Christ fits in relation to the millennium. Is it pre, that is before the millennium, or is Christ's return post, after the millennium? Here's a, a simplified diagram of the various positions. And you can see on the left-hand side, if we zoom in, is the first coming of Jesus through to eternity. And so between those two, well, first of all, the first view we have is a, a type of premillennialism that is following the time of a, a time of tribulation, that the second coming of Christ then ushers in the beginning of this thousand-year semi-golden age where Satan is bound and Christ reigns. And at the end of that thousand years comes the last judgment. Uh, The second view is is a variation on that. Uh, It it adds in another second coming with the rapture of the church before the tribulation. Then there's post-millennialism, which says that there will be this This thousand years somewhere in history during which God's kingdom will advance on earth and things will get progressively better leading up to the return of Christ post the millennium. And then there's amillennialism. A means without, which is not a really precise description of the position, but it says that this this millennium is referring not to a a literal 1,000-year period, but to the time between Jesus' first and second comings. And then there's pan-millennialism, which is for people who think it'll all just pan out in the end. (laughs) That's a simplified uh, overview of the various positions. But for some people, this is a very big deal. Uh, Some people have have developed detailed and and complex programs of of what's going to happen, how it's all going to happen, and and kind of express that in in a diagram which which lays out exactly what's going to happen, where it's going to happen, and you end up with with things like this one here, which um, is really quite extraordinary. Um, Here's the thing, though. The different views of the millennium come primarily from one passage of Scripture, Revelation chapter 20. 
this chapter we're looking at, which means it's important that we understand this chapter. And it's important that, like any part of the Bible, that we understand it within the, the message and the context of the book in which it's in, the book of Revelation, and that we understand it within the, the message of the Bible as a whole. And we should be wary of, of any system of theology that is pretty much derived entirely from one passage of Scripture in isolation and irres, irrespective of the broader teaching of the book and of the Bible. And so what I want us to do is, is to do what we do every week at church, to look at this chapter of the Bible in relation to the message of the book and in relation to the Bible as a whole. But before we dive into it, you might be, uh, some of you might be thinking, well, gee, John, I'm, I'm no theologian and, and all this millennializing stuff kind of sounds a bit out there and, you know, frankly irrelevant. Can't you just give me something useful? If that's you, I want to say, hang in there. Hang in there because look with me at Revelation 20 because actually this is immensely useful. I mean, we know that because it's God's word for a start. And what I want to actually show you is that Revelation 20 is far from just being some sort of controversial passage that gives rise to all sorts of weird and and complicated diagrams and programs for the future. Actually, these 15 verses have a wonderful message of encouragement that we need. So look with me. Uh, There's four scenes you'll see outlined in the, the handout. Four scenes within John's vision in this chapter. Firstly, there's the binding of Satan. John writes, verse 1, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now we've encountered um, this, this dragon a number of times throughout Revelation. This, uh, and John makes very clear here who the dragon represents. This is that ancient serpent, the devil or Satan. And here he is bound by an unnamed angel. Uh, We're not told who this angel is, who binds him. But actually what matters most is, is how he is bound. That is, he is bound comprehensively, but not destructively. That is, he's not destroyed, but there's no question as to whether or not he's being contained. Now, the language is emphatic. It says he's, he's bound, thrown into the abyss, locked, sealed, kept. And so in this vision, Satan is, is alive but is restricted, contained. Uh, contained until verse 3, the end of the thousand years when he must be set free for a short time. Notice he's set free. It's not that he escapes or kind of gets the better of God. and He is set free and, he, and that must happen. That is, it's according to the plans and purposes of God. But notice also why he is bound. It's to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. And that's what Satan does. Satan is the deceiver. He deceives people. He deceives them into rejecting God, into to fighting against God. And here the nations are no longer deceived that's the first scene then in john's uh, in john's vision we have the reign of christ verses four to six christ reigns for this thousand year period and others reign with him 
Now, who is it who reigns with him? Well, verse 4, it's those seated on thrones, those who've been given authority to judge. Verse 6, it's those who share in the first resurrection, who are priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. But then he mentions the second part of verse 4, the souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. It says they had not worshipped the beast or its image, had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So the question is, are the, are the ones seated on the thrones, are they the same group as these beheaded Christian martyrs? Well, no, in the sense that I think this is actually talking about all Christians. All Christians reign with Christ. Now, that's what Revelation 5.10 says, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Likewise, Revelation 1 verse 6 says that Jesus has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. This is talking about all Christians. All Christians reign with Christ. This fulfills uh, Exodus 19 where it says uh, that, that God's people are a kingdom of priests, which is also what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2. So then why does it mention those who've been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus? Why does it single them out? I take it because it's because they, of, of all people, may seem the most defeated, the least victorious. I mean, how can they reign? They don't, they don't even have a head to put the crown on. Yet they're, they're kind of the ultimate picture of defeat. And yet, says John, they, together with all God's people, reign with Christ. I think they're singled out to make the point that even those who seem most defeated are in fact victorious. Well then, when is this happening? Verse 5 says it happens following the first resurrection, which I take it is talking about Jesus' resurrection. And that actually fits with the broader teaching of Scripture. Uh, it, and, and that points, points us to, to the amillennial understanding. Because in Jesus' death and resurrection, that's when Satan was overcome and bound. He's not completely destroyed, but he's restrained. He's no longer able to deceive all the nations. And in Jesus' resurrection, we too, along with all who trust in Christ, are raised spiritually with him to now reign with him. That's the teaching of Scripture in, in, in many places. So, for example, Ephesians 2 verse 4 says, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. We have been made alive with Christ. Or uh, Colossians 3, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your minds on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That is, those who have come to life in the first resurrection, they're all who have been born again by the Spirit of Christ. And so I take it this is talking about the period between Jesus' death, resurrection, and his return. During that time, Christ reigns, and those who've been made alive with him spiritually reign with him. 
But when it comes to this reign of, of, of people reigning, actually the, the thing that's most important is not the people reigning. It's that Christ is reigning. Satan is bound and Christ reigns. Uh, Romans 1 speaks of it in this way. It says, He, that is Christ, who, uh, who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power. And the Son of God is a title of, of the King. He's appointed to reign in power, notice, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles, that is the nations, to obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. So Christ reigns now, appointed in power by his resurrection from the dead. Well, that's the second scene. Then we come to the judgment of Satan. Verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. Uh, in, in number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. So Satan is released. And true to form, what does he do? Well, he goes out and he deceives. He deceives the nations to gather them from the ends of the earth. And by the way, I think that's what Gog and Magog is talking about. It's a reference to Ezekiel 38 and 39. And uh, it, it seems it's, it's, it's just a way of saying the ends of the earth. So Satan gathers all God's enemies, this innumerable number, like sand on the seashore, gathered them to wage war against God and his people. And it's this big kind of build-up as if we're expecting this epic battle. But verse 9 continues, But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We've got this big build up to this great battle, but it's over like that. There's no contest. Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Does that sound kind of familiar? We've seen this before. It's a repeated idea throughout Revelation. The same thing happened in, in chapter 19 with the great supper of God's judgment. And here it's repeated because, well, not because it's happening again, but because it's actually describing the same event. That is, the battles in Revelation 16 and Revelation 19 and Revelation 20 are not three different battles. They're three descriptions of the same battle. Revelation presents a sequence of visions, not a sequence of events. Which is why I believe that the premillennial understanding falls down at this point. That is, we don't have the, the return of Christ and the great day of judgment in, in chapter 19, followed by the millennial reign of Christ, after which there's another judgment in chapter 20. And it actually doesn't make sense because everyone is killed in chapter 19, verse 21. And if it's a sequence of events, well, how can they then be gathered for battle in chapter 20? No, it actually makes much more sense to see this as a sequence of two visions of the same event like two different camera angles, like watching the cricket and someone gets out and then you see, you see different replays of the wicket and so you can see the one event in sequence of, of different visions. And the key thing in each of those visions of this event of judgment, the key thing that's emphasised in both chapter 19 and in chapter 20 is that the final judgment 
over Satan will be swift, will be complete. There will be no doubt about it. Well, then comes the vision of the final judgment of all people. And the scene is of a great throne. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Remember, white is symbolic of victory. The one on the throne, this great white throne, is victorious. And his judgment is inescapable. It says, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. You can't escape him. And everyone is there. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. This is a picture of the final day of judgment, a final reckoning where justice will be done. Even if people have have seemingly escaped justice in this world, if they've gone to their death without seeing justice, they won't escape it in the end. God will bring a final day of justice. When, as verse 12 continues, the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. No one escapes justice. Judgment happens according to what they had done, as it's recorded in the books. That is, the punishment perfectly fits the crime. But notice there's another book. Verse 12, another book was opened, which is the book of life. So there's, there's books, the books of the deeds, and there is the book, the book of life. The books record what we've done, and if we're, if we're judged according to them, we would all stand condemned before God because we have all rebelled against him in thought, in word and deed. There are things written in those books, the books of the deeds, that stand against us. But there's another book, the book of life. And those whose names are written in this book, they, it says, will escape the lake of fire, an image for the condemnation of God. So the question is, well, how do we get our name in that book? Well, we've read of this book earlier in Revelation, in in chapter 13. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life, the Lamb who was slain. That is, if we trust and follow the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God who died for us, who shed his blood to take the punishment for us, for the sins written in that book that our sins deserve, then our names have been written in his book, in the book of life. And on that judgment day, even though the things written in the books of, the de- of our deeds would condemn us, the book of life declares no. John O'Squire, or insert your name here, his sin has already been paid for. Justice has already been done. See, in the end, we will either be judged by the Lamb's book of life or by the books of our deeds. We're putting all this together. What's this telling us? Well, this is not talking about some future golden age. This is talking about now. That is, Satan is bound now. 
He is, to use the, the image Jesus uses in Mark 3, he's the strong man of the house who has been bound by Jesus. Or as Colossians 2.15 says, he has been disarmed and triumphed over by the cross. That's where Satan was bound. Or as John thir- uh, chapter 12, verse 31 says, he is the prince of the world who has been driven out by Jesus' death. That is, this is talking about now, the age we live in, which started with Jesus' death and resurrection, will continue until his return. In this age, Satan is bound, and we are reigning spiritually with Christ. World evangelization is underway. The gospel is going out to the nations. No longer are all the nations being deceived. Instead, Christ's kings and priests, his people, us, are out preaching the gospel everywhere, all across the world. I mean, before Jesus came, the nations were deceived. Only the Jews acknowledged God. But since the coming of Christ, died and risen, he has sent his apostles out to the nations, to the ends of the earth. And whilst the devil has not yet been completely destroyed, in fact, he's still like a lion seeking to devour whoever he can, 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, yet he is restrained such that people from every nation, tribe and language can now hear the good news of the risen Jesus, can be raised to life with him spiritually now and can await with confidence the final day when all evil will be completely vanquished and perfect justice will be done. See, in the end... Revelation chapter 20 is a message of great hope, a message of great encouragement for all who trust in Jesus. For those who don't worship the beasts of this world, who don't live for this world and who therefore face opposition, perhaps even death because of their testimony about Jesus. God's word here says Christ is victorious. Remember that. He has defeated the evil one. We reign now with Christ. We've been born again spiritually. And now is the time for for us, for Christ's kings and priests, to to take that gospel to the nations as, as part of Christ's kingdom. Part of his reign now is that that gospel message goes out, that the nations can hear and believe. And we do that knowing that in the end Christ will return and bring justice and he will destroy all evil. That ought to strengthen us. That ought to encourage us. I think sometimes it can feel like the return of Christ is, oh, gee, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's far off. It's distant. It's, we need to remember and keep perspective on, on this. Uh, Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is is holding back his final judgment to give people time to turn to him in repentance and faith. So, by way of implication, well, firstly and most importantly, Are you ready for judgment? That is, will you be judged by the book of life? 
which says, paid for by the blood of Jesus. Is your name written in that book? That is, have you handed over your life to Jesus and said, please forgive me my sin, forgive me and change me that I would live with you as my king, as my saviour. I want to trust and follow you. If you've done that, then your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and come the final day of judgment, you have nothing to fear. But if your name is not in Jesus' book, then come judgment day, you will be condemned. I want to say, if that's your current position, I want to plead with you to do something about it, to turn to Christ now before it's too late. God is patiently holding off his judgment. But the day of his judgment will come. Make sure that you are judged by the book of life, not by the books of your deeds. That's the first implication. Second implication is simply to be encouraged. Take heart, rejoice. Even in the face of difficulty and opposition, as verse 6 says, blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. That's us if our trust is in Christ. We share in the resurrection of Jesus. We've been raised to new life with Christ. We are priests of God holding out the good news to the world around us. And this is the time for Christ to reign as he sends his kings and priests, us, out to preach the gospel, that people from all nations, from all walks of life, that they would come to new life and reign with Christ now and forever. This is a great encouragement. It's a great encouragement to me. I hope it is to you. We have new life spiritually with Christ now. He is Lord and he is king over all. And we've been caught up into his reign, into his kingdom. His kingdom is spreading. It's growing all over the world and we are part of that. What an encouragement. Praise God. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Our Lord God, our gracious, loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the victory of Jesus over Satan on the cross. Father, we thank you for raising us to new life in Christ. And we pray and ask that in this time, until the return of Christ, that you would use us as your servants, as your messengers, use us to spread the word of the gospel, so that more and more people might come to faith in Christ, that they might have their names written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who died for us. Father, I pray for any here this morning who are yet to bow their knee to the risen Lord Jesus. Please bring them to see your great love for us in Christ and to turn to you before it's too late. And Father, we pray that you would bring on that day, the day when all evil is destroyed, when you bring perfect justice and peace. And Father, until that day, keep us encouraged, even amidst opposition, encouraged with the knowledge that Satan is bound, that Jesus is king, and that he will return soon to judge. And we pray this in his mighty name. Amen.